Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Revolution 250 podcast. I'm Bob Allison. I chair the Rev 250 Advisory Group. Rev 250 is a collaboration among 70 organizations in Massachusetts looking at ways to commemorate the history of the American Revolution. And our guest today is Selena Baker, who is a novelist, a writer now based in Texas. Selena, welcome to the, the podcast. Thank you for having me. And Selena has written a four-volume series called Angels and Patriots, which is an interesting take on the revolution. I'll maybe let you tell us a little bit more about it as we go on. And you've also written a prequel to it, uh, What Happened Before. And now you are immersed in doing a biography. It's a fictional biography, I believe, of General Nathaniel Green. Yes, a historical fiction. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The Line of Splendor a novel yes. of Nathaniel Green and the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. and so it's understandable, having done this deep study of the revolution, that Green would be a character you would come back to for a standalone book. So what is it you find compelling about the story of Nathaniel Green? I think it was um, his roots, like a lot of the men during the revolution and women. He came from average America. He was, his father was a Quaker. He had a lot of brothers. Uh, he did a lot of manual work. They owned farm ships, iron forges, and he actually uh, worked in the iron forge by pounding smelt into anchors. And his father uh, was didn't believe in book learning beyond math, English, uh, reading and writing mm -hmm. and so they were his he was forbidden to read other literary volumes so he but he went ahead and did it anyway so mm -hmm. right there he was already kind of rebellious young man yeah. you know going against his father and um so i just i could see him growing from this young man who decided that he needed to step forward into the world and he wasn't a huge radical. He was irritated because the British uh, confiscated his ship, the Fortune, uh, for not paying uh, levy taxes at port taxes. So that kind of is what ejected him to the revolution. Mm. And I just saw him grow as a general, um, as a husband and a father. And I was um, impressed with how he, no matter how he made mistakes, how many mistakes he made, how sensitive he was to criticism, he just kept going forward and and he earned Washington's trust. And I, I could just see him growing as a man. And that was my, my first attraction to him. Interesting. And he is um, a rebel against his father, but also he's a Quaker. So how as a Quaker does he wind up being an officer in the Continental Army. He uh, did some things that were against the the Friends, the Quaker Society. Um, he went to his plays. He did some things with his cousin Griffin that were that the Quaker Society accused them that were improper, which they were had just like either gone to a tavern or gone to a military parade. It was one of the two. It wasn't mm -hmm. something horrible. So they were put on the spot by the Quaker Society and said, you know, what are you guys doing? And, and, and Nathaniel and his brother, his cousin Griffin refused to talk to them hmm. and refused to tell them. And they were ousted out of the meetings 
they weren't asked out of the society, but the meetings. And he just eventually just moved away from them. He didn't want to formally participate with the Quakers anymore. Does he get involved in any other religious organizations that you know of? Not that I know of. His wife, Katie, was not religious mm -hmm. either. Um, she grew up on the isolated island of Block Island off the coast of Rhode mm -hmm. Island, and they didn't really uh, observe religion there either. So I, he, he still talked about providence and God right. in his letters and mm -hmm. things, but nothing yeah. formal. That was one, of the, one of the striking things about his letters is how much he does talk about things. I mean, he gives such a great window into not only the period, but his mind, his relationship with his wife, with other people. That's tremendous. Art Very art. much. Yeah. So what can you tell us about Katie, Catherine, his wife? She's from Block Island. And, she was uh, from Block Island. She was 13 years younger than him. He hmm. was coming, he was in love with some other woman and she just finally jilted him and said, you know, I don't want to marry you. Wow. He already knew Katie through his distant relative, William Green. Mm -hmm. Her, his, William Green's wife was raising Katie. Katie's mother was dead. Mm -hmm. So Nathana would go to visit William Green and Katie would be there. And she's, you know, this young, vivacious girl. Mm -hmm. They fall in love. They get married. Uh, he leaves her and goes off to the siege of Boston. She's pregnant. Wow. And that begins her many years, like many of the wives, uh, being alone without her mm -hmm. husband. But she goes to the winter cantonments, and she's very convivial. She's smart. Mm -hmm. She's beautiful. Um, the women are jealous of her, except for Martha mm -hmm. Washington and Lucy Knox. Not kind of, maybe. Um, but she she was uh, ended up being one heck of a woman after he died, the things that she mm -hmm. did. She was involved in the invention of Eli Whitney's cotton gin, hmm. her and her second husband. Wow. How did that come about? And what's she, do, what's she doing down in Georgia and or South Carolina after the revolution? Well, when Nathaniel Green was, I don't know, I'm kind of like jumping now, but okay. Nathaniel, of course, fought with Washington in the North. Mm -hmm. The Revolutionary Wars, I, uh, the the British and the English Parliament's eyes kind of turned down to the south and they started going down there. Cong they took Savannah, they took Charleston, they took Wilmington, North Carolina, and uh, Washington sent Nathaniel Green down there in December 1780 after a series of failures, of American general failures to take mm -hmm. over. Congress said, you choose this time. He chose Nathaniel mm -hmm. Green. Nathaniel Green went and he chased the British basically out of the South. Mm -hmm. And so Georgia gave him a plantation and so did South Carolina. Hmm. Well, so he's He ended up moving down there because mm -hmm. uh, he was in terrible debt and he was trying mm -hmm. to recover from the war. Yeah. It's really striking that at the end of the war, there are only three general officers who had been there since the siege of Boston, and they're Washington, Knox, and Green. Yes. And so he had, you know, left Rhode Island, and then for eight years been part of this uh, effort where he's really not getting paid. No. And, uh, well, he got paid a little when he was quartermaster. Right. Right. 
How many children do they have at the at the end of the war? They had five surviving children. Wow, wow. And so would the children also have been in the camps when they were at these various winter camps? That's a good question. I, I know Katie sometimes brought their oldest son, George Washington Green, with her. I believe when she went through the other cantonments, she left the children with Nathaniel's brother, Jacob, or some of his family members. Um, he would not let her come to the South, though, for the first couple of years. Yeah. Because everything was really bad, really bad down there. Yeah. And that's a fortunate thing for us because he wrote to her a lot about what was happening in the South. Yes. No, so, so is George Washington Green the baby who was she was pregnant with at, during the siege of Boston? Yes, and unfortunately, he drowned in the Savannah River when he was eighteen. Oh my goodness! Uh, he went to Europe to school and under the care of the Marquis de Lafayette, mm-hmm. and he came home and yeah, I, I don't know how long it was afterwards that he drowned, but it wasn't that long afterwards, and he was buried with Nathaniel Green in Colonial Cemetery in Savannah. Um, After, so I was gonna say that his body got moved, but that's a whole, I won't go into all of that, but. Okay, so yeah, and you you told me you were working on the book now. Uh, We're talking with Selena Baker, who has written a number of novels about the revolution. And right now she's working on The Line of Splendor a novel of Nathaniel Green and the American Revolution. You told me you're working on the draft for your all in seventeen eighty six. I don't want to give away how No, it's ends, okay. But, I um, General Green's on the wall behind me over at my business. I see him. I see him. Yeah. <laughs> Looking over your shoulder as yes. you write. Yes. So, uh, so how uh, you must get really invested in these characters as you're really trying to imagine their inner thought, their inner lives, really, as you're doing a novel. So it's not simply uh, this happened, this happened, and this happened. History, yes. really recreating a mental world for Nathaniel and Katie and their children and the other people. And so what have you changed your perception of them since you really began this deep dive into Nathaniel Green's life and times? I don't think I have. I think I was pretty enamored with him from the beginning in my uh, Angels and Patriots series. But I I have found things that I had no idea. I found his will. Hmm. He had written a will in October 1785. Uh, Just the things that I had discovered just Hmm. by digging around. um, It's not all in the books. It's just, you know, fascinates me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's maybe the difference between writing fiction and writing history is you can pursue what, in each case we can pursue what fascinates us, but um, you really need to know more to write a novel. You have to be able to recreate what they were, what someone was thinking and- Yes, um, and what they were saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The conversation part of it, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're not just making it up. You have to have some root in what was, Possible, I think. That's a that's a good question, and and I re- have read as much as I possibly can about his letters, and so mm-hmm. I can when he's when he's writing his letters, he's writing to someone, right? And that person might be close to him, or he can they can talk to one another. Another thing I've done is I have read obsessive amounts of biographies 
of the people that he was with. Right. Katie, Otho Holland Williams, Washington, Henry Knox, because I can't understand how the people he interacted with thought unless I read about them too. Right. So, so did, no, go on. No, go ahead. How did the people he did he have any enemies say in the Continental Army? You and I, you and I think he's great. Was there anyone who thought, boy, we're not as fond of him as we should be? As <laughs> he had, he was criticized horribly by a lot of people. Charles Lee, who was actually his commander, mm -hmm. uh, when the during the siege of Boston and uh, after Washington arrived, criticized him horribly because uh, Green told Washington that he could Fort Lee and Fort Washington were defensible. Mm -hmm. Green had command of Fort Lee and Fort Washington. They fell. Yeah. Lee was horrible to him. They were all horrible mm -hmm. to him. Mm -hmm. But Washington supported him and brought brought you know, kept him in the fold. Mm -hmm. When he was in the South, he was criticized harshly for sticking his nose in civil authority, mm -hmm. for bossing the militia around. One of the militia mm -hmm. guys, Tom Sumter, hated him. Really? And he was super uncooperative. And he, mm -hmm. some people called him a little dictator when he was in the South. Called Green the little dictator. Mm-hmm. And he, but he went down there to do a job and he was gonna mm -hmm. drop dead before he didn't get that job done. Mm -hmm. He yeah, had his faults, he, oh, for sure. Oh, sure. So what were some, of, not, not that we're gonna dwell on his faults, but what were some of his faults? He was uh, sensitive to criticism. And, mm -hmm. it, and, and this is just my opinion. I'm not, you know, I don't know what he was thinking. But he had a limp, he had asthma, and he had a smallpox scar on his right eyeball. And so mm. his eyes were infected a lot. Mm. Mm. And when, in 1774, he joined a militia company in Rhode Island, and they flat out said, you cannot be an officer because you limp. Mm. And they said it publicly. Wow. So wow. he was really sensitive to criticism. Mm -hmm. um, he could be irreverent. Mm -hmm. He uh, was pushy. He had he had a lot of of we all do. He's a man. Yeah, yeah, that's good. It's good to know. And you, you mentioned earlier that you saw in him this capacity for growth that and and then learning from mistakes. And he does make some big ones like Fort Lee and Fort Wash. Fort mm -hmm. Washington is a big one. And then he sometimes does come down with an illness at an inopportune time, like during the Battle of Long Island. Yes. Um, but what is it that makes, how, how does he first meet Washington and what makes Washington such a strong supporter of Green throughout their time together? That's a, that's a, a question I've been asked before. And mm -hmm. I don't have a good answer for it. There's something Washington saw in Green maybe because he was, he tried hard. He, he was um, dedicated to the cause of freedom. He swore he'd give his life. Uh, he, he continually produced, he kept his camp clean. He, he wanted to please Washington because that's his new mentor. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really exactly sure. It, 
what Washington saw in him, except for this young man who was enthusiastic and and a strong leader, a businessman. And you make the point that he was very young. He was the youngest of the general officers at yes. the, of the war. And does he? Does his father ever come around and say maybe you know book learning wasn't such a bad thing? Or? His father died in 1770. So okay, so he's not part of any of this. No, Nathaniel's brothers were. His brother Jacob kind of was involved, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, his dad was dead. And he's. Green isn't really happy when uh, Washington keeps putting him in charge of things that are difficult. And one is being (laughs) quartermaster, which is something he really doesn't like being, but he's very good at it. Yes. And he hated it. Yeah. He he hated being chained to a desk. He argued with Congress constantly. It was a constant battle. Of course, Congress didn't have money. Mm -hmm. They were disorganized. They would take his deputies away from him. They would reorganize the department. And mm-hmm. then suddenly he wouldn't have the same guys working with him anymore. And mm-hmm. he's like, I need these guys. I can't do my job without deputies, commissaries. Mm-hmm. They won't listen to him. And, um, but he did, was an excellent quartermaster anyway. Just like everything he did, he put 100% of himself into this job. Mm-hmm. And then he also presides over Benedict Arnold, over the John Andre trial after yes. the Benedict Arnold treason. So and then that, people seem to have mixed feelings about having to execute Andre as a spy when they really wanted to get Arnold. And it must have been a difficult thing to be sitting in judgment on Benedict Arnold, who had been one of their real pillars um, before. Can you tell us a little bit about Green's role in that affair? Um. There's not a whole lot of depth, in-depth information that I can find. That doesn't mean there isn't. Yeah. Um, he, Green was very disappointed in Arnold. Mm-hmm. I do not know how sympathetic he was toward Andre, because I know some of the officers were. Yeah. Um, I think Green just saw it as doing his job. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that I, you know, I can't really answer exactly what he thought about Andre himself. It's one, yeah, it's one of the really tantalizing things about this because he is someone who is a he, he, the way you're you're describing him kind of in two ways. One is as someone who's very good at his job, and then someone who also has this side that you see, which is really interesting and. He reveals a lot to himself, as you were saying, to people he knows, like his wife. His letters to her are different than his letters, say, to um, perhaps Washington. Uh, are you asking me if they were different, if they seemed different, like how yeah, he talked yeah. to Katie versus how he yeah. talked to Washington? Yeah. Yes, he talked to Katie more like a husband. Um, they had like his best friend like she was his best friend and uh, I don't he poured his heart out to everyone even Washington so maybe they were very similar now that I'm talking to you about it and thinking about it in those terms mm-hmm. um, because he he for instance when he resigned as quartermaster general he told the Continental Congress in a letter which was that made them extremely mad that 
and he literally wrote this, you have hurt my feelings. Wow. And he would write something like that to Katie as well and be real, you know, I'm sorry if I upset you, mm -hmm. I, you know, whatever. But he would upset people when he wrote because he was kind of mm -hmm. forward. And then he well, would have to back off a little bit and say, oh, I'm sorry, I, you know. Hmm. Why do you think that is? I mean, why, A, a he is very upfront, but B, he also is, as you said, sensitive to criticism. I, I mean, I realize you're a novelist and not a psychiatrist, but I'm just wondering if you've given any thought, if you can have any insight into that part of his character. Yeah, just like I said before, I think it's because he had physical challenges, a limp, um, asthma, smallpox scar in his right eye, that he was criticized for his limp. I think also too, maybe his lack of formal education may have had something to do with that. Of course, Washington didn't have one either, and neither did Henry right. Knox, but yeah. it may have had something to do with that as well. Yeah, and Charles Lee isn't someone who comes across very well in the long scheme of things. When you say Charles Lee didn't like him, it's really not a harsh criticism. I would, I would be worse, I suppose, if Charles Lee really was a big supporter. Well, um, at first, Charles Lee and Green got along fine. But it was once Green made a mistake, then Charles Lee came in like a bulldog and attacked him early. He even attacked the whole Rhode Island regiments hmm. and said they were worthless. And it was, it was a bad attack. Oh, yeah. So at first they got along fine. Oh, yeah. Wow. Wow. It's interesting. We're talking with Selena Baker, who is writing uh, The Line of Splendor a novel of Nathaniel Green and the American Revolution. And she's also written a four volume series, Angels and Patriots, which is a fascinating look at the revolution with, uh, you have the characters like Green and Washington, but also you have angels and demons playing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I should have mentioned that you also have an interest in supernatural and in fantasy fiction. And so it's really, here is this, um, period that we know a lot about, but you have injected a whole new way of looking at it. So how did it come to you to do a fantasy series on the American Revolution? Uh, the first, my first two books are historical fantasy and they mm. were set in Victorian America. And after I wrote the second one, I thought I'd like to continue historical fan or historical fantasy, but what could I write about? Mm -hmm. And I thought, what do I know something about? And what do I want to learn more about? Because this is also a learning experience for me. Mm -hmm. And um, the American Revolution, I realized I knew enough about it that I could get started with a, a series. And I started with the Sons of Liberty because I knew something about them. And um, so I needed to inject fantasy in there and I, angels, fallen angels came to me. It's not, it's not an unusual thing. People write about them all the time. Mm -hmm. They came to earth. They were in a war with God's demons because they had disobeyed. They believed that their, what they had done was affecting the Americans in, in the colonies because they knew some of the demons were British or in Britain. Now there was no war, it was December 
1774 when the angels started realizing this was happening. They went to Boston. They met the Sons of Liberty. They said, we might have brought this down on you. They didn't believe in killing the children of man, whether they were British or English or, I mean, I'm sorry, or American, but they sided with the Patriots. And the series just grew all the way from there, all the way through the surrender of Yorktown. And did you initially see this as a four-volume series, or you think? No, initially I thought it was going to be a standalone. But the first mm-hmm. book ends right after Bunker Hill, and I was like, "I'm not done. No. There's this whole war we can fight, and the angels <laughs> are fighting their own war, and mm-hmm. and the patriots are coming in and saying we're okay with that." And mm-hmm. it just—I I was learning things. It was—it was a huge learning experience because. Been a, the series is historically authentic, accurate, but of course it has the supernatural elements in right. that interaction as well. But the amount I learned just writing this mm-hmm. series was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And it was a lot of fun too. I'll bet, I'll bet. Now you must have been a reader of um, fantasy, supernatural fiction during your pre-novelist years. You, you spent about 25 years to, as, as a software writer and mm-hmm. doing the computer world. So would this have been something you would have done to relieve your mind from the technical aspects of doing software? Hmm. That's a good question. I never thought of it that way. It could be. Okay. It's a possibility. Okay. And, and and so you're now doing to do the angels and demons appear in the green novel or is that no, going to be no. Just it, it, this is not going to be it's just going to be straight historical fiction the line of splendor uh, yeah. no angels no fantasy okay um, angels and patriots is an adult series mm-hmm. uh, where the the novel about green is going to be more you know PG G okay um, oh, good. Because I, I, I felt that I wanted to be more respectful if it was just about him. Mm-hmm. Not that I wasn't respectful. I was in Angels and Patriots, but just yeah. to take the fantasy part out. Right, right. That's interesting. And so do you, uh, uh, as you're writing this, um, the, the Angels and Patriots, I'm really just curious about where you as the novelist draw a line between you know, the fantasy side of it and, and the kind of a straightforward history side of it, or are they so intertwined that one wouldn't work without the other? No, I, I'm actually with this novel about Nathaniel Green, I'm trying to move a little more, I am moving more toward historical fiction mm-hmm. and kind of away from the fantasy, at least for now. Yeah. Since the first two books are also historical fantasy, I thought I probably had done enough with that okay good now green i mean it's a he is such an interesting character it's almost a shame that lin-manuel miranda didn't read your book before he read the (laughs) book about hamilton because his life would make for i think a great musical i think so too and his life is the american revolution basically Mm -hmm. what happened to him at the end was tragic Mm -hmm. um yeah he, he's and he's a unknown unsung hero yeah. that people should really know more about 
they should, they should. Of course, he's remembered in places like, well, in Rhode Island, certainly, and then in the Carolinas, where there are places named for him. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to give away the ending of the book, but you mentioned that his ending is tragic. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, without giving away the end of the book? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it, well, well I, I think, well, no, he does die in the end. Yes. But, uh, uh, <clears throat> he fell into horrible debt trying to pay for his soldiers' uniforms and provisions in South Carolina when the war was after Yorktown. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the war wasn't over. He still had an army to take care of. And a lot, and everything went wrong with this, this loan that he was trying to get. Mm -hmm. The Continental Congress gave him nothing. Mm-hmm. He had some bills from the other states, but they were worthless in South Carolina. So he put up his own signature mm -hmm. and he went into horrible debt. And it, it, so the tragedy of him desperately trying, and it's very complicated, mm -hmm. and desperate trying to get out of his debt and all the things he's trying to do. And he's trying to protect his family. And he, he's embarrassed about what happened with his finances. And he gets no help. Uh, he borrows money. Mm -hmm. And just this man who sacrificed everything, especially in the South. And this is how it's going to end. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a waste. A wa it was a waste. Mm -hmm. And it was a shame. Mm -hmm. The only yes. good thing was Katie stepped up to the plate after he died. And she was not going to let all that just go out the window and do nothing. So that was the bright spot. But that's after the book is over, the novel is over. So you could do another book about her. She is. I thought about that too. <laughs> yeah, it, she is a fascinating character, as you said. Um, George and Martha are taken with her. Other of the officers' wives are are jealous, but then. She does have a an interesting life after her after Nathaniel's death. She marries again, um, and as you said, she's involved. Eli Whitney comes down, and she's involved with the cotton gin. And she's a you know Rhode Island woman who comes to Georgia and stays there. Yes, and and that's a good point. She was used to parties and. Mm -hmm. Dressing up and the the Newport Society or the Winter Cantonments or Philadelphia, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. and she goes to Savannah. <clears throat> excuse me, and it's just not happening down there like that. Yeah. But now she's more mature, mm -hmm. and somehow she found her way without a man holding her hand. And when she married Phineas Miller, it was under a prenuptial agreement. Hmm. So she, they had land in Savannah, South Carolina, and Cumberland Island, Georgia, and some other various places up north. So there was quite a bit of land. They were land rich, but cash poor. Mm -hmm. So who was Phineas Miller? Phineas Miller was, Nathaniel hired a tutor for the children right before they went to Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. Katie was pregnant, and he needed someone to to, to teach them because she wasn't it, she was overwhelmed mm -hmm. so Phineas Miller was a Yale graduate very young 
man went with them to Savannah. And when Nathaniel died, Phineas stayed with them. Mm-hmm. So she and Phineas married about six or eight years later. He was 10 years younger than her. And just around that time, Eli Whitney came down from Yale to tutor her neighbor's children. Mm-hmm. So they both, Phineas and Katie, knew him. Mm-hmm. And they both chipped in on financing that, that cotton gin. Mm-hmm. And actually, Eli Whitney fell in love with Katie Green as well. But that, wow. that relationship never happened. I mean, it never came to fruition. Mm-hmm. So... Unlike his father, Green, Nathaniel Green did believe in education for his children. Yes, and in fact, he left that in his will, um, what he expected to be done to educate them and the children. And like I said, he sent his son, well, he didn't send him to his dead by then, but he made arrangements to send his son George to France to, mm-hmm. for it to be educated as well. Right. Yeah, so Lafayette takes George back to France or overseas his education. Yes, yes. And then I, I know it's well beyond where you're writing, but Lafayette does visit with Katie when he comes back to America yes. in the 20s. Oh, it, yeah, did he? No, I she was he, dead by then. Okay, but he does stop at, I think he might have it visited. Was the, yes, you're right. It was the 1784 tour he did. Right. He went back, came back. They gave him a tour of Rhode Island. So that mm-hmm. was before Nathaniel died, but Katie died in 1814. Okay. Interesting. So we were talking with Selena Baker, who is the author of Angels and Patriots, four books on the revolution, and she is working on The Line of Splendor, a novel of Nathaniel Green and the American Revolution. And not to put any pressure on you, but when do you think we will we'll be seeing the book? in the bookstores and on Amazon and on your website. (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to be patient with myself to make sure it's all. Um, I'm hopefully in the next year and a half. Good, good. Certainly too long. Yeah, and are there things you wish you knew about Nathaniel and Katie? that would, you know, as you were writing this novel about them or things you really wish you knew? Wish I knew. Yeah, like I wish that they had written down this or uh, is there, uh, so you, you as the novelist would have a better time or the reader would have a better time of understanding. Yes, um, Katie burned her letters to Nathaniel. Hmm. He, he gave her a complex. He said that she was a bad speller. Wow. And that she needed to watch her spelling. And he told her that quite often. And he was not a good speller either. So wow. I don't know where he was coming with that. But um, yeah, she burned her letters. That most of the things they know in her biography are from his letters responding to her letters. Wow. She, the letters after that, she liked to Eli Whitney and, and, and Alexander Hamilton, who was helping her or someone like that. She, mm-hmm. Those letters are, they, I have been able to find those. Mm. So I wish that, that she had not done that. I think it would have made for a whole richer feeling of their relationship. But, you know, Martha Washington did the, a similar thing with her letters. Yes. 
Wow, fascinating. So we've been talking with Selena Baker. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. I really appreciate it. It's been, it's been great. Yes, and we'll let you get back to the book. I want to thank you, and I want to thank Jonathan Lane, our producer, and our listeners who have been good with questions and suggestions. And every week I thank folks in different places. So we have regular listeners in Edna. We'll do some capitals today. Edinburgh, Washington, D.C., Bangkok, Madrid. Thank you all for joining us, as well as our listeners in Piscataway, New Jersey, and all places in between. So uh, now Jonathan will have us piped out on the road to Boston. Thank you. Thank you.